0: BigOwl.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Needle Mythology podcast.
1: Needle Mythology Brought
0: to you in association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the peerlessly great jet earphones.
1: Needle Mythology
0: And the revolutionary new Flare Zero modular loudspeaker.
1: Needle Mythology
0: Today, I'm truly delighted and excited at the prospect of spending some time with one of the defining bands of the British post-punk boom. Try saying that seven times quickly. Their self-titled debut album was released by Rough Trade in 1979. First and foremost, it was quite simply a thrilling beginning-to-end listen, a synergy of strong aesthetic decisions executed with an unprecious brio by a band perfectly described by Greta Gerwig's character in... What was the film again? I've forgotten.
2: 20th Century Women.
0: Uh, Described by Greta Gerwig's character as what happens when your passion is bigger than the tools you have to deal with it. On listening to that record, Vivian Goldman was moved to write, It made me realise that it's taken 27 years of listening to hear a woman's rock album they made three albums during the first period their first period of time together following that eponymous debut they gave us the exotic esoteric jazzier meditations of 1981's Audie Shape, and for what a long time looked to be their swan song 1984's moving but a generation of musicians who had been inspired by them just as they had once been inspired by patty smith the clash and the slits started to cite them as a pivotal inspiration among those fans was Kurt Cobain who in 1992 at the height of his fame made a pilgrimage to the Rough Trade Shop in West London looking to replace his worn out copy of their first album and once he would bought the album he was duly dispatched by shop staff to a nearby antique shop where one of our heroines was working at the time. Um, in the liner notes of Nirvana's incesticide LP he recalled that meeting. He said it made me happier than playing in front of thousands of people each night. Rock god idolisation from fans, music industry plankton kissing my ass and the million dollars i made last year <laughs> in the light of such a backdated acclaim not just from kurt but the vanguard of Riot girl bands that emerged around the same time it must have seemed obtuse not to reconvene for one more album and thank god they did because 1996 looking in the shadows was a consummate left field pop triumph foregrounding the melodic gifts that were abundant as far back as 1979 when fairy tale in the supermarket launched them into the wider world 40 years have elapsed since the release of that single and that eponymous album that group of course was the Raincoats and I'm delighted to welcome founding members of that group Gina Birch and Anna De Silva to the Needle Mythology podcast Are you still here? Still awake? A little out of breath
3: A little out of breath (laughs)
0: Thank you for joining me on what is a really quite unpleasant day in central London.
2: Very rainy. You need us.
0: We do, yes. What did you, where, where, did you, uh, where did you respectively come from today?
3: A meeting with Anna and Shirley about our raincoats hoo-ha, because we have plenty going on right now. Lots of stuff is going on. It just seems uh, very exciting and um, ongoing.
0: So Shirley is with us, you, your long-time manager. Can you share with us some of the details of that hoo-ha?
3: Wow. Well, you know, one of the most exciting things was we decided um that we would uh, present ourselves with a gold album. Uh <laughs> it's only gold in that it's gold vinyl. Um but it feels like a celebration, you know. Um it's gold marble and um uh, <laughs> marble marble vinyl. Yes. You know, these days anything's possible.
0: I oh, know, it's very nice. I've got one myself. It's, uh, it, you hold it up to the light and it's lovely. Sorry. And, yeah.
3: and if you put it on top of something kind of yellowish, it, it shines even more golden. And um, Shirley was just indicating to me to, 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 to tell you that <laughs> um I, anna's uh drawings have been evident in the raincoats uh since the raincoats year dot but i have been painting a lot um in the last 6 years and there's one of my paintings is uh available um as a
0: as a print as a print in the in the sleeve in the um in, in the, the artwork the, in and the art. really well,
2: one of each one oh. one um, print of um, a, a piece of work that we both did separately
0: it's a beautiful package' it's on our own label, label. yeah That's which right. is called
2: we three we've done both albums on on our label and and CD as well
0: right okay I've got to ask you Anna about um, the the day that Kurt Cobain paid you a visit um, yes. a surprise visit I imagine because you wouldn't have been it was it literally just a knock on the door
2: Um Kind of. You said something earlier uh, about him buying the record and then coming to the shop. He didn't buy the record because they didn't have it anymore. This is the thing. Our album uh, was out for a while. I can't remember how long, for five years. And then it didn't exist anymore. So he was looking to, in the hope of finding a second hand or like in the in the bin, as he, he said. And he didn't find one. And they said, for him to come to my shop because I work near uh, Rough Trade and not my shop my my cousin's shop and uh, he came with uh, Courtney who was pregnant at the time Uh, because they came uh, we found a record to send to him uh, we all signed. I got all all of us to sign it, and we stuck some bits from a booklet that we had, yeah. and uh, and sent it to him. And that's why he wrote all that stuff.
0: First of all, did you rec? No, you, I okay. didn't know
2: who he was. I just thought it was just a fan, you know. He said his name probably. I remember yeah. vaguely that he said something, but. Uh, I didn't really know their music. I had seen the the uh, posters, but I would not know their names anyway. Even if I
0: did, had, he tell you. Did he tell you who he?
2: He probably he, just said, oh, "My name is." And, and he said something about uh, when I hear your album, I just fall on the floor. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, and then they. But they, I, there was a client in the shop, so I I didn't really talk to them sure. to the point that they would explain that they're both in bands and this and that. So and I think. He felt shy, um, and they just looked at the, some of it because my cousin had some some uh, female figures from churches, and he seemed very interested in those. And then the next album, you see why, because he's got all these uh, faces, uh, sort of plus, um, little faces, yeah, yeah, on the cover of the record. Uh, and then they they went, and only later when I went next time, I went to Rough Trade. They they mentioned the fact that it was him.
1: What's
3: so tragic is that the antique shop where Anna worked, you'd get about one customer a day, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, it was it was, yeah, it, was yeah. it was it was, <laughs> it was very very um, particular type of shop. Yes, yes, people are always asking me, "What when you met Kurt?" And I was like, "I didn't meet Kurt. Yeah. Anna met him, but even when she met him, she didn't know who he was." Yeah, exactly. Like, the big story is a little, little so, bit sad. So, in way? a way, it's like I didn't meet him really.
0: that's know. like life. Isn't life like that though? That's life yeah. just it's a, just life like is just like that.
3: like that. So that's the new single.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so. um you must have been, I'm, I'm kind of, obviously you were asked to uh, open for Nirvana, which you never happened uh, because Kurt was ill at that point. And um, I'm a big worrier about when I've got a big event on the horizon, I really worry too much. And I can almost imagine that w- w- if I got the news that it was cancelled. Yeah, it was. Maybe oh, a part yeah. of me would have been like. Oh. Relieved. A <laughs> I feel terrible at saying that, but maybe it wasn't like that. For, I would like to know what it was like for you.
3: I, uh, what What makes me laugh is that uh, all these people who would bought tickets got the, uh, you know, uh, are really in a hurry to get a refund, and, now, and they got their money back, and now those tickets are worth so much more than the uh, money they ever got back as what the face they, value.
0: What do they go for? No, do I you have
3: know? no idea. <laughs> I
0: have no those, idea either. It's like a little piece of art in itself, isn't it? We haven't
3: got one, have we?
2: No. <laughs> we got the money back for all of them <laughs> oh, okay. I think that's the right thing though
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely. was yeah, yeah. it oh, Was it that he died yeah, 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 prior yeah. to because uh, there was a sort of a suicide thought, attempt wasn't an there?
3: overdose in Italy yeah. Yeah.
2: yes so it was postponed and then right. he died and then that was the second time was cancelled
3: we were on stage about to uh, perform yeah, we um, and we were supporting Liz Fair and Cat Power was playing as well it was a I think the first gig she played or the night she got signed to Matador Records wow. and um, when we were doing our, um, our sound check um, Ray Farrell turned up and said you've got some very sad bad news and uh, told us about Kirk.
0: So Anna, you stayed faithful to West London because because I West London sort of helped to give you your collective voice in a way, didn't it?
2: Yes, uh, I was living there, and uh, and Gina ended up living there as well in the same area, yeah. and uh, we we went to Rough Trade, and I worked at Rough Trade, and Gina later worked at Rough Trade. So that that's a few minutes away from where I lived and where I live now, two, two different places, and uh, so th- the whole thing was based there and friends that were also doing other uh, bands and stuff lived
3: in that area. I moved there when I went to Hornsey School of Art, which was in Alexandra Palace. And strangely, um, there, were, there was a, a, a guy on my uh, in my space at, at the art school who said there was a room in his squat. And he was a kind of local West Londoner. He'd been to Holland Park Comprehensive and so on. And so I moved into a squat in a little cul-de-sac mm. off Westbourne Grove called Monmouth Road. And I lived there for 39 years. <laughs> but then I had two daughters. And, uh, well, that was a beautiful flat.
0: Hang on. If you live in a squat for 39 years, don't you sort of have – you, aren't you able to sort of bite after a certain amount of time?
3: Something like that happened. What happened was there was a squatter's amnesty. And when, um, when the squatter's amnesty happened, we decided we would form a housing co-op. And we did form a housing co-op, and that housing co-op, um, strangely, we we ticked or we didn't tick a specific box, which did ultimately give us the right to buy. Some people bought early on, and we thought that was kind of a devilish thing to do. But eventually, <laughs> <laughs> you became the devil. Yeah, I, I mean, it is a, it's a, it's a hideous thing because actually, you know, I am now property rich, and uh, you know, I'm 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 an artist. I'm an impoverished artist with a with a very expensive house it's crazy isn't it
0: better that gina from the raincoats has a very expensive house than whoever would have ended up buying it most probably in the first place
3: you know i was brought up a catholic i still kind of have this kind of cross on my back you know i'm like should i have this house but you know i'm i'm very grateful for it so
0: yes no i i I, say you know there's always something to sort of punish yourself
2: i think everybody should have their own house really
0: yeah, absolutely. Be well, able to do yeah. that. You moved over from Portugal, Anna. Yes. Uh, from Lisbon, that's right, isn't it?
2: Yes. I'm from Madeira, and then I moved to Lisbon to study. And uh, when I came here, I had finished my studies. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Hmm. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go and do a an art course and that's what, why i met Jean eventually.
0: Yeah. I read a great quote that was attributed to you Anna when you first uh, arrived in London. You said you couldn't tell the difference if if it was a bit run down or posh, presumably because it was so different to where you'd come from?
2: Yes. Yes, I didn't. You know, when people say, "Oh, those times, everything there was still things destroyed by the war, and there was uh, the uh, the the uh, rubbish strike and this and that." And for me, for me, it was just uh, Disneyland almost. It, it was, was all, just all different. Yeah, and it's all like a film in a way. And then the music, uh, the, the punk thing started. Yeah, and I just felt really at home with it, and I started going to gigs, and and this thing was happening around me and I was in inside it and f- that was really the most exciting thing for me because before that everything was really far away and mythical and unreal. One time I saw somebody, I can't even remember, that I had seen on television and it was Almost like a shock seeing a yeah, person walking yeah. down the street, you know, that I had. And with the punk thing, I just felt part of it. And that was really,
0: really good thing. You almost describe it. It's interesting, you know, to, to be there in the eye of the sort of punk storm. At the same time, the way you describe being in London, it's almost like Mary Poppins or something like that. Yes. It's got it.
2: Yeah, and and really, if there was things that were a bit tacky, you just you know,
0: I was young; I didn't even notice it. So London was a a sort of an abrupt culture shock for both of you. And you were saying earlier on, Gina, just before we we sort of started that. Well, I just assumed it anyway, to be honest. That coming from Nottingham, and what would it have been—a sort of lower middle class upbringing, or just a kind of straight ahead middle class upbringing? What what? Was yeah, it?
3: Well bo- both of my parents had you know had outdoor toilets and you know that that their lives weren't uh, weren't paved with gold by any means um and so they were definitely trying to kind of claw their way up to have a kind of have a better life um but they didn't have much money and um yeah so so I you know, I had a reasonably good education, but I wasn't as focused as many people were. Somebody said to me the other day at my painting place, oh, your generation, you all, you all failed all your exams and you're all doing really well now. I think at that time there wasn't such a kind of a major focus on getting A stars and A's. It was about you know education was just there and it was yeah. a kind of it was a kind of right you just expected to go on with it.
0: I mean so- that's the great thing about your generation of musicians. So many of you failed your a- exams and academically, you know, uh, you, you know, or, or, or if pieces of paper are in it to go by, you know, you're sort of poor. But some of the great some of the greatest lyrics of all time have come from that sort of generation of uh of artists yes. you mentioned something about your da- it, that it just, just struck my interest but you mentioned something about your father earlier on who you said yeah, I think well, the I, detail was uh, that he had s- solar panels
3: yeah w- i woke up in the middle of the night and I, for some reason I, w- I was thinking about my dad and um i was thinking about the things my dad liked and the things my dad didn't like and um my dad was quite keen on like alternative medicines he was quite keen on on um, um, acupuncture and homeopathy and uh, reflexology and and he also um, was interested in solar panels i mean I think you know a war generation person was also interested in maybe that would be a kind of financial thing yeah. i, I But maybe he was an environmentalist as well. But we never discussed that. Uh, I think that generation didn't like wastage.
2: They didn't like wasting. My my dad was like that. Our generation has been very wasteful. There's no two ways about it. We are wasteful. People throw away, wear something for a season, throw it away at the end of the season. Lots of people are, are very wasteful. And they weren't. And I think we kind of got a little bit from them
0: like that, you're onto something, Anna. I think that's very important. You <laughs> I just know.
2: remembered something. We had a, a kind of garage uh, in our house, and uh, there was hundreds of empty bottles. And my father didn't really drink, my mother even less, and so that's the, when, what there was you the,
3: think, Anna. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> and there was hundreds just because they uh, they they couldn't bear the thought of throwing all those bottles that were, were really good and um, and whole away. You know, I <laughs> know oh,
0: it's. <laughs> Well, you
3: did get three p back on your Corona bottle or three old d. Maybe here, but yeah.
0: Yeah, and you had people that go well, used to go around picking them up and mm, kind of redeem them. Yeah.
3: Well, I was going to say I lived in a kind of recycled house. You know, the the, the squat was definitely um, really falling apart and um, was in a was in a terrible situation. And and actually, uh, us moving into it made it. Warm and homely, and and kind of brought it back to life. Because actually, in that time in, in in London, there was so much empty property. I think a lot of people had moved out of the centre of London to to what seemed to be more desirable homes in the suburbs.
0: Yeah. The squat scene, uh, certainly in London, and I'm sure elsewhere, was synonymous with the counterculture. And you know, I sort of so, I try and imagine myself in if I was a bit older, say I'd moved to London and kind of join the west london punk scene at the same time um and then i'm from a fairly traditional background my parents are greek and Greek Cypriot. i mean i'm imagining myself standing in the phone box saying to them yeah i've moved into a squat yeah no no don't worry it's fine and um i thought there's this thing called happening it's called punk it's really good and i've met some really interesting characters bought some new clothes don't be alarmed when you see me and uh do you, was do you know what I mean? Is there an element of like how did the generation gap? It seems to me at that time in history, it's probably a lot larger than it is now. And like you know, like my kids have just had tattoos, and that kind of is just like what they did today. Yeah. God knows what they was into. Well, you know I, I mean?
2: it was a bigger gap then. The the way. They came from out of the the wars and everything, um, and and because there wasn't much stuff to have. Now there's so much stuff, um, and I think uh, and the way they thought and and there was uh, there wasn't as much um, uh, media. There was a few newspapers here and there, but there was no. TV, practic- well, when I was growing up, there wasn't t- TV in Madeira, and all those things uh, make the world a sort of um, bigger place. Be- there's more things to have. And, what what and did your parents to do, Anna? My father was a lawyer, and my mother was a, a secondary school teacher of English and German.
0: And what did they? Were they able to get kind of the into the headspace of the first Raincoats album?
2: Well, they, I don't think they ever heard it. Uh, I think I played a bit one time, and uh, but I, I told my dad I had been at the, on the BBC, and he was very proud of that. Oh, I had been on the, on the um, J- uh, John Peel show, so I, I told him that, and he was very proud of. Was that. Was that
0: your first play? <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming Fairy Tale in the Supermarket was it, or even before? Or were you in session? What was your first? Uh, Play
2: in the supermarket.
1: I
3: was going to tell you about my parents and yeah, yeah. my punk thing, please. Because, please. Um, my dad. Uh, my, my dad, when I first moved to London, I, I was moving in with some people I'd met in Nottingham who happened to um, be drug dealers that I'd met at a party in Nottingham. And they had a rather nice house, but, and they were going to offer me a room. But my dad drove me down with my stuff, and when we rang the bell, uh, they didn't answer the door. So I kept ringing the bell for about an hour, hour and a half, and eventually they answered the door. So I thought that was quite strange. <laughs> And then and then I'd met Neil at um, Neil Brown at art school and he offered me room in his squat. And I thought, well, that's going to be a step up from where I am, actually, um, in in many respects. And and it was. But it was very, very tumbled down. And I never allowed my parents to come into it because it really was a bit of a state. But my dad would say things like, well. I think the most practical thing are carpet tiles. So he would like want me to buy carpet tiles for my <laughs> yeah. for my for my room. And I was, I I would prefer to go down and get a nice moth eaten rug from Portobello Road. And the other thing he bought me was a rather kind of funny little walnut, uh, walnut veneer, uh, bedside table. So this kind of wall, walnut veneer <laughs> bedside table sat like a kind of strange sore yeah. thumb in my um. In my uh, in god-forsaken YouTube, yes. <laughs> home, you know, I had a, I had a two-ring um, gas cooker on the floor with a kind of big red gas pipe coming towards it, which leaked slightly, which kind of killed off any plant I ever had in my in my room. How good.
0: so weird when i first moved to london weirdly enough my dad without arranging it for me also contacted a friend who fitted carpet tiles and i came home one day and i found some carpet tiles being fitted into my the kind of carpet tiles you would see at a kind of expo at the excel oh, Centre. Yes. <laughs> you my know dad
3: the... loved that stuff <laughs>
0: <laughs> well there's yes there's a lot in that and in, in a way it kind of presages some kind of aspects of what i wanted to talk about in your in your music and um I'm going to jump the gun a bit and before we go back to the first album I'm going to talk about uh, the second album Odyssey because I think it's uh, it's it's an album that kind of really really sort of resonates over the years.
1: television history is contained in the box of delights.
3: I've climbed up Nelson Scotland once before. These are small and put it down in front of Bagpuss.
1: I'm Julia Rayside. Join me and my guests as we dip into our favorite TV memories. I must have a head like this. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. You ain't my mother. I love when a plan comes together. Come and tell us what yours are too.
3: We've all been told we can't discuss nominations. It's a bit of car area. Shut up with a novel on the top. I think I like you, love Find us on Twitter at box.com. Lights Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Great Big Owl. Needle Mythology.
0: Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. I guess it sort of reminds me that predominantly the history of rock and roll has been sort of mostly male. Men generally don't write songs about their bodies. And this just occurred to me really as I was kind of coming on the way here. I was just thinking, I can't think of many songs by men about their bodies. And obviously the counterpoint them, I'm thinking about a song like Oddie Shape. It's necessarily different, isn't it? Because of course, you know, whatever you think about your life, about your adult life, First of all, I guess you have to make a decision about whether or not you're a person that does or doesn't want to have children, how that's going to fit in with your career, whether or not you'll be punished for it and all the rest of it. And none of that sort of really sort of occurred to me until fairly late on.
2: Yes. Well, I suppose that's the way we feel that we are seen as, uh, that women are seen as uh, physical objects. Mm. And um, to a great part, and people still men still see... Uh, women like that in, in a lot of cases. And uh, and I suppose that makes you aware and self-conscious of uh, of your body and you want to have a beautiful body and a beautiful face and there's no two ways about it. I think there's more pressure now with men having to look more... Made up and yeah. and hair taken out and things like that. But but women have that even more than they used to because there's more things that you can do to your to your body, false nails and uh, uh, things to add to your hair and all sorts of different things to do your eyebrows and, and so many things. It's just unbelievable. It just keeps getting worse. And
0: all of which cost money, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that's you're already sort of weakened, you know, in terms of the financial maintenance of it all.
3: Yeah. I mean, always growing up, I think I I, uh, I didn't quite fit into what was expected. You know, yeah. I, I remember when my, my brother brought a girlfriend home and and she said to me, oh, I can see what Nick means now about you dress weird. You know, because I had this odd dress on and some Olaf daughter boots. I think it was like a weird Moroccan dress somebody had given me. But then when, when we were punks in London, you know, we, 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 we definitely um, got strange combinations of things from charity shops and we had sewing machines and we made things and we had Madeiran boots that Anna had put red gloss paint on so you know if you wanted a pair of red patent boots you painted them with red gloss paint you didn't have to go to camden market and because they probably didn't have them in camden no. market you know we're and, and we would put sugar in our hair and and you know my mum used to say when i was growing up, have you got a comb you know why haven't you brushed your hair i think you'd look nice with a little bit of lipstick on you know and, and, and none of those things seemed important to me yeah. and so when when we were um punks we were kind of we we were kind of in our own shoes you know we were walking the way we wanted to be we were presenting ourselves in the way that we wanted to present ourselves but at the same time you know there's however much you're kind of treading your own path there's a little bit in your mind going is this you know should I be should I be so you know when I write I'm not glamorous I'm not polished in fact mm. I'm no ornament it could be my body shape I wonder will that ever look right that was a kind of idea of that other voice kind of Coming in and questioning my choices, which yeah. actually I didn't really question in myself, but I I, I thought it's a question that culture of course, asks yeah. and yeah. society asks.
0: Yeah. I was just going to pick up on a point you made earlier on, Anna, about the fact that you know men seem to be, um, you know, ha- having that pressure to sort of you know, you know, sort of wax and polish various parts of their body. Is there a part of, I always wonder if there's a part of women that just ah. Good. Now you know. Now you know a little bit about how. Now you're sort of privy to the to the same pressures that, well, not the same, but you know what I mean. That now it's your turn. Sort well, of. Well, we thing.
3: didn't do that anyway. So you know, I, I think men who don't have to do it, but no. if if they they
2: have a choice, this is this is the thing They yeah. they have more of a choice to do it. than than women like women
3: who didn't shave under their arms I mean they were either thought of as French or really weird you know (laughs) I mean French (laughs) women didn't seem to have to do it but you know I mean I remember Palmolive there's a photograph of Palmolive with uh, hair under her arms and that was thought to be kind of really disgusting Mm -hmm. and you think give me a break i mean imagine if beards were like thought to be really <laughs> s- disgusting sexual things you know kissing with someone with a beard i mean my god how dare they
0: i mean i in a way i think in a way the 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 prospect of kissing someone with a beard is more of a potentially unpleasant thing because of course it's on their face you can't you can't avoid someone's face i mean you kind of you kind of got the option of avoiding someone's armpit if you want to
3: and it does absorb the natural smells <laughs>
0: There's a great line on um, uh, on Shouting Out Loud where uh, I think you refer to a woman as a man with fears. And there's almost like a haiku-like simplicity, but it's such a powerful idea, though.
2: It's not... No, there is a woman and there is a man. The two <laughs> Separate different thoughts. Uh, identities. It's just that... I was talking about women, but I was thinking, you know, it's not just women that have fears. Men have fears, too. And uh, it was a kind of inclusive thing that I did. She's not a separatist. No, No, I'm not. Not really. Me neither.
0: (laughs) Good. I'll I'll relax. Um,
2: (laughs) We're here with you.
0: Bless you. Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) We
2: might not be telling the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Better watch out. I'll just just
0: keep supplying you with coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you polarised people to a degree. Although by and large, there were I, going through the archives. I noticed that there were the, the good reviews definitely outnumbered the bad ones. I so thought I guess one exception would have been Danny Baker, who I thought sort of, said something like, was it, "The raincoats are so bad that every time a waiter drops a tray, we'd all get up to dance."
3: We love that one.
0: What was this place that had waiters in it? This is what I never understand exactly. about that exactly. I don't
2: know. He's a comedian. That's where he goes to <laughs> places
0: with. I love, I love it. I love. Maybe there was chicken in a basket as well. I'd like to think that there was. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was yeah. a kind of just very a very nice. weird booking. Um, that period of time seemed to sort of happen very quickly. In between being at Hornsey Art College and like, the slits played, and you, like, Pa Palmolive was in them at this point, wasn't she? And uh, there's that wonderful quote about everything was so new that she hadn't been drumming for very long so her drum kit her bass drum kept sliding forward because she didn't know that you actually kind of weighted it down yeah, yeah.
3: that's what she says herself, <laughs> you know. yeah I, I, in the little film i made of her in new york she says that and it's brilliant because yes yeah, she's like it was like a rhythm she'd play the drums it would slide forward she'd pull the drum back and <laughs> She put this ad in, uh, in, in Compendium Books, which was a great bookshop at the time and a place where you could hang out, actually. And, and where
0: was Compendium Books?
3: In Camden, on Camden High Street? I can't remember exactly. We... Um, and uh, the, 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 the ad said uh, um, violin keyboard wanted strength, not style, meaning don't get really care what you look
0: like-ish. Hmm. <laughs>
3: but uh, we want somebody who's got a, a vision of some sort yeah. and and Pam Olive really didn't describe to us what she wanted but she kind of subsequently told us that she wanted something very kind of um classical yeah, kind of classical and soaring and, and beautifully played, you know. Whereas when Vicky joined, you know, if she dropped the bow on the on the strings, we cut. We love that. We love that. We we kind of we liked her. We liked her making noises with hmm. with with and the drones. drones particularly. Yeah. So so we we, we um. What? It was it was it was rather disappointing to Pamela how the violin ended <laughs> up. Sadly. Yep.
0: But uh, that's so often the case, you know, a group, especially in its early stages, is a sort of um, accidental compromise of different visions, isn't it? You, yeah.
3: you bet. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were all at different stages of maturity and development and in, in terms of our ideas and our creativity. But we like the Velvet
2: Underground hmm. and that was kind of informed a bit. And I know. guess
0: not too many people would have known about the Velvet Underground at that point, would they?
2: I think Probably quite not, a lot but <laughs> really? I, uh, not, I think not in at Birmingham at, I, I think at the time in punk, it was kind of bubbling Right. I had the cassette of them so I, I, I knew them before
1: Sunday morning Brings the dawning It's just a restless feeling By my side
2: because I really think that our songs are very different from each other. Even the first album, which is more cohesive, True. I think still each song is quite different from all the other songs.
0: Yeah, you, I, you know, different kind of aspects of what at least I perceive your personalities to come through. I yes. remember the first time I heard the Void. I think that really kind of knocked me sideways a bit because it's such an elemental song. Do you remember that one in particular?
2: Um, although I was. Uh, living in London and and was enjoying being in London but there's these dark moments of I suppose loneliness and do you fit in the world and what what what, what would you do what is yeah. it what what who are you yeah kind of thing well,
3: It does remind me a little bit of uh, Sterling Morrison. You know, there's a kind of, a kind of almost haltingness to it, and and a beautiful and a beauty in it that is kind of unexpected. You wouldn't find many guitarists playing that solo, and it's it's something quite special. You know, reggae was massive mm. at the time, and so. I always like breakdowns of instruments, so you know I really like just the violin and the bass playing together, you did know, interweaving, going up and down. And, and
0: you, you learned to play by what, playing along to "Toots <laughs> to, to and <laughs> to the Maytals."
3: Yes, I did. In that song, the kind of the peacefulness mixed with the kind of chaos and emptiness of the feeling is yeah. is really powerful I think it's a great piece of work actually you know it's, it's a lovely great song but I think the way the song exists is fantastic and I'm very proud of it.
0: Oh absolutely I couldn't have put it better myself and I think one thing that kind of maybe spoke to ensuing generations of music fans and mu- musicians was a sort of broader aesthetic that you know the kind of the the way you dressed. You could have almost kind of walked down the street and bumped into someone sort of looking, and, and in a weir- weird kind of way, it's what I loved about the undertones. Say, um, they just it wasn't this kind of tacky postcard version of punk that I'd sort of seen on yeah. in tabloid newspapers. These were, you know, stylized. If I may. They, they looked completely unstylized. You're absolutely right. And so you they, could, those you
3: punks could, didn't really exist when when 1976, those punks that you see and, you know, pictures of punks with Mohicans and no, they didn't exist. That that was a kind of uh, later.
0: One of the great things about the raincoats is I could sort of imagine just seeing you guys just hanging around on a kind of on a bench here outside <laughs> W.H. Smith.
3: <laughs> oh, we never did that. <laughs> Sorry to shatter your illusions. No, but for instance,
0: you you didn't look particularly sort of radical in that way. Well,
3: actually, yeah. we looked quite odd to be perfectly honest. I mean, we didn't look kind of um, uh, attractive girly, but we did look kind of quite strange.
2: Yeah, we, we were into what we wore, but in a creative way. Yeah. So we really chose... The materials or the things that we bought, and uh, and uh, so it was always a conscious decision if you wear this with that. Yeah, I had a, um, like
3: a, a really drainpipe coat that went right down to my knees, and I'd wear it with some galoshes, and you know, and then you'd have your hair sticking out. So you wouldn't look like your archetypal um, Midlands teenager. Yeah. you would look a bit peculiar, and 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 it wasn't that I definitely wanted to look peculiar. It was that I wanted. I chose these things because I liked yeah. them. I liked what they did to me. I liked the way they, they made me feel. And uh, I always liked, you know, I always had really skinny legs and, then, and I had big feet. And I thought, well, make my feet big. Yeah. My feet are big. Yeah. Suck it up. <laughs> and my toes. <laughs>
2: had our own style sale. It was because we, we we chose the things that we personally liked, so we didn't have a, oh, what are you wearing today for this gig so that I don't clash with your colour or something. Yeah. We never did anything like that. It's, uh, it's just we each decide how to look and that was it.
3: Anna might have a rotten banana or an old <laughs> uh, luggage tag on her. Yeah,
2: the rotten <laughs> or, banana was just for a photo. Or paint her <laughs>
3: face with lines. Yeah, yeah.
0: Musically you diversified very quickly and I love this kind of detail in the liner notes of Shape about taking, bringing new exotic sort of <laughs> instruments back into the country. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Don't tell me! That's the thing, we went to a shop, in. we were in New York, we played there and went to a shop called Manny's and they had instruments from all over the world and, uh, and we bought a few things and when we got back to London. We just thought well let's use these instruments because we weren't stuck in one way of doing things so we just explored those instruments and used them in some of the songs it was natural the natural thing was to explore, explore. these the, explore ideas and explore instruments and and we swapped instruments as
3: well sometimes just to make sure we couldn't play too well <laughs>
0: rated very well as an album, I think, especially in the light of what you know, some of the most recent interesting music that's coming out of the left field um, use of interesting use of brass and more exotic instruments. Uh, although I did notice the line notes you said, I think your least favourite song is on here. Is that right?
3: Oh, I've made my piece with it.
0: Which well, you didn't mention which one it was though.
3: <laughs> Dancing in my head. Oh really? Because I, I when we when we did a mix of it, it had reverb on the vocals, and then and then when it came to be on the album, it didn't. But I've I've actually put a bit of reverb on it on a on a version on my um, <laughs> computer in a film, and I've oh. I've edited some images to it, and actually it works really beautifully. I thought
0: you fixed it basically.
3: <laughs> I fixed it for myself, not for the general public. They can do the same.
0: one of many interesting things about the the final album in this period moving was that um i believe it features the first song you ever wrote, Gina, but um
3: no, no one's little girl. Oh yeah, yeah. No gonna be cuz i don't
1: wanna be and never shall be in your family tree.
0: Why did it take so long? Why did it take seven years for this?
3: Well, well it's funny because uh, wrote that song and we played it, and when Kate Corris Kate joined the band, um, she was throw- She was the first person to be thrown out of the slits. Um, she used to guitar us before Viv Albertine happened to turn up, right? Uh, and um, and Kate turned up with this song, and it seemed really tough. And she was a real kind of tough girl uh, from Chicago, and and. and I thought I can't sing Noah's Little Girl. You know her songs like Selling It, Selling It, <laughs> Five and I felt like oh shit. And eventually, um, went and did it as a kind of more like with a Tom Morley from Scritti played drums and we had the drum machine, and uh, it was it was it was a kind of um, I don't know. I mean, it was a, a a later kind of way of working that was more kind of studio based I suppose <laughs> and and um, you know it was just a whole other thing it was just always a song that um, kept coming and going in my head you know whether it was a good song or not I don't know but it, it's, it's a funny lyric you know that because I'm No One's Little Girl also reminds me of that terrible song, you know, I'm nobody's child, I'm nobody's child. And I think, oh my God, if it sounds like that, that's fucking awful. So so if I'm, I'm No One's Little Girl, oh no, I'm not, I'm not going to be. <laughs> so it's just like trying to find the right balance between those kind of
0: sure, yeah, things, yeah,
3: yeah. you know, and, that, and, and my mum always says, but you're my little girl, you know, all that stuff. It's actually quite, it's, it's quite hard.
0: Were your parents taking a sort of active interest in the band at this point? Were they? Were they?
3: Oh, well, my mum always liked to have everything I had made um uh, my dad would laugh to his friends and say oh they have made a terrible racket you know he loves to talk about the terrible racket that we made I don't know if they were dancing around the living room to it in my absence I'm really not sure
0: we may never know
3: I so, have to ask my mum my mum is 91 and she's still alive oh fantastic
0: so okay. I'll ask her yes.
3: on Sunday and I'll let you know do
0: please do Did it seem like the sensible time to sort of finish the band at this point in the yes. mid-80s? Yes, did, it felt at
2: that time. Everybody was pulling to the different directions. There was more people playing in the band. There was six of us at one point And uh, it, just, uh, it just felt... Um, we were in New York when, when we did the last gigs, I think. And uh, I just felt, this is it, I don't want to do it anymore. And... Other, the others probably felt the same thing, and we decided to, um, to split up. But um, uh, Shirley suggested, we'd, because we had some songs, well enough for an album, su- suggested that we'd go to the studio and do the album, and that would be it. And hmm. that's what we did. And we decided the way to kind of deal with it and the different opinions and everything would be each person would be the director Of their own song so Mm. would have the last say and uh, everything was fine nobody argued about anything and and we all agreed and it was it was it was good
0: Uh you actually outlasted a lot of your contemporaries now that I think about I mean
3: yeah we're killing them off one by one well
0: now of course you have but even in the mid 80s (laughs) you know a lot of your contemporaries had sort of already dissolved and so i guess it probably seemed you probably felt to you in a way as it often does to young people who feel like they've been doing it for ages like you'd given it a good run
2: well, well the thing is we didn't play for very long because we started the band in 77 we recorded 79 and then we split up in 84 so that's like 5 years mm. 6 years and then we we went together for 10 years and then just Gina and I got back together.
3: It was funny because actually once Anna said to me, oh, you know, I think when we restarted, she said something like, oh, you know, in in all the time we played, I don't think we even ever did as many as 100 gigs in, in all the time we existed, you yeah, know, which yeah. actually seemed really small, you know. <laughs> and and so I think probably since then, we probably have done another 100 gigs.
0: Yeah, right, okay. but um, still
3: not like some
2: people... Uh, tour constantly yeah. they do 100 gigs in 3 months
3: we're doing a 5 <laughs> date tour well yes. you've got a lot of other stuff we... going
0: on and I, I get the Im- <laughs> the impression that the raincoats is a very important part of your life but it is just one part of That's your true. yeah
2: but it is a very important
0: yeah. part it's weird to think that actually at that point only 10 years had elapsed since your last album and you know and obviously 2 years later uh, looking in the Shadows, you'd recorded and released looking in the Shadows and I, th- I sort of think of that As being the new Raincoats album And, um, and of course that was, That's now 23 years ago <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Which is kind of worrying um, I think it's a really great record And I almost feel like I can't, I can't quite tell whether or not You think that these days I well. like it do I you? haven't
3: heard it for a while But I do like it I think in about 30 years People will like it mm-hmm. Maybe Or maybe not
0: But it just kind of reminds you actually what great tunes you wrote all along. I guess it's kind of your, as close to being sort of your pop album maybe in a way that uh, as it is. It's just a record I can play sort of time and time again. Uh, it's
2: also got to do with the producing um, because the producer made it quite reverby and a bit sweeter than maybe we would have done it yeah. if we had made, you know... I, I w- I mean, if we didn't like it we were too much, we probably would have said and they would have to. But when you're fighting with somebody else, it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, and I think maybe we didn't even realize because you're in a studio and and it's difficult to, to make certain decisions and, and see it objectively.
0: Yeah, yeah it's um again you know going back to the, what we were saying earlier on about you know the things that men write about and the things that women write about and more to the point the things that men don't write about i don't think i've ever heard a song about that addresses infertility before which is something that happens on that record uh what precipitated that song
3: oh i wonder <laughs> oh sorry i mean but I... well um i can show you some paintings actually um I wasn't infertile, I just couldn't um hold on. And right. so I had lots and lots of m- m- miscarriages, is that what we're talking about? And, oh, um, oh yeah, what was the song?
0: To confront the subject in the in the Oh, Baby
3: of- Dog, yes. Life goes on, and somehow now i a baby, I've got a baby dog, I've got a baby dog, I've got a baby dog, I've got a baby, I've got a baby dog, I've got a baby dog that was a sketch i did which is like seven miscarriages and the cots in the shed it was just a a sketch for something
0: it's amazing Uh, so we can see two kind of empty cots sketched out in the background and the sort of the seven embryos embryos represented i guess
3: and a woman holding one yeah so I, I had a lot of miscarriages, and eventually um, I have two amazing daughters, both of whom are adopted from China. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Woof, woof, woof here. Talks to me. Uh, I, I did a recording uh, for uh, Resonance the other day and yeah. one of my daughters rang up in the middle and she kept ringing, kept ringing. So eventually I took it and she said, uh, Mom, how would you feel if I shaved my head? <laughs> so <I> was like, <laughs> it was just like quite funny because now she's 19. And uh, so that's a long time ago when I was going through all that. um, and, um We've just got this fantastic family. So, oh, wow. um, I'm so happy. Honey is 19 and Lele is 17 and um, you know, I, I and I'm married to Mike who's a New Zealander who works um for um secretly group. And did,
0: did Honey shave her head by the time you got home?
3: Yes, she had <laughs> shaved her head. Well, actually she moved out, but so she came to visit on, uh, uh, a little later that day. And it's it's actually about a quarter of an inch long all over. Yeah. I was like, but you didn't shave your head completely.
0: Oh, we can't uh, see. <laughs> and that's how much of the <laughs> generation <this> <laughs> gap has narrowed. So like yeah. The, yeah. The, the parent berating <laughs> the child for not shaving their head closely <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs>
2: of um, our songs have got some hope at the end yeah. of, of them so you just have to keep this hope and <laughs> yeah. and deal with the problems I mean the problems come towards you or uh, or you create them and uh, but it's just sort of try, trying to solve them and, and getting to sort of a, a a better place, yeah. She,
3: she's always so wise
2: and so kind of. I'm very wise. We both have and a
0: wise countenance, I have to say. Yeah, you, yeah, know. Yeah. And, you know, I love your cat. Count- That's your
2: why they're with me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're with me because I'm so wise.
0: Yeah. Going back to your kind of influence on subsequent generations of musicians, I love the fact was it, I think it might have been Eugenia that. You were sort of spotted Carrie Brownstein from Sleater Kinney at a gig. No, it was me. Was it you? <laughs> yeah. And you well, couldn't know you she couldn't say it. hello to her.
2: Well, I I I didn't say hello because um, I just thought she was there to see Vivaldi. <laughs> I just assumed
1: it was our gig. <laughs> <laughs> it was
2: our gig, but I just kind
3: of i just i don't know I Hang just... on.
0: if it was your gig what was viv albertine doing there and how would she why would she have turned up to... i don't
3: know i just thought we I... invited viv to she play with us of... when we were in new york when she was making her kind of comeback music yeah. yeah. we were very um uh, encouraging of her to do to do it and we invited her to play quite a bunch of shows with us in, in america
0: oh, fantastic
2: we find that all
3: sorts of people
2: actually like it, but we didn't know then, and we haven't known for. And suddenly, somebody says, "Oh, you know, David Bowie liked you." And, or, well, why
0: wouldn't he? But David Bowie was very was a very yeah. proactive consumer of new music, yeah. uh, so that kind of figures.
3: And yeah. I think some people like the record now that hadn't liked it before. When they hear it now, they go. Somebody asked me the other day, "Did you did you remix it? Did you change it at all?" I was like, "No," and they said, "Well, it sounds a lot better now."
0: No, someone remixed remixed. <laughs> Th- the world and yeah. the, <laughs> yeah. it, I
3: mean, the world's caught up
0: um, okay um, thank you very much I would like to thank Laura Druce my producer and thank you to Flare Audio for their continuing help with this podcast and thank you also to Gina and Anna the raincoats uh, for your sparkling company over the last hour or so and uh, we've got to plug some dates haven't we right? yes, yes. November the 8th at Le Guess Who in Utrecht. Uh, November the 10th, Earth in London. November the 13th at the Brighton Comedia. November the 15th at the White Hotel in Salford. And November the 16th at the legendary Mono in Glasgow.
3: And at Earth on the 10th, we have some Mm -hmm. extremely special and as yet unnamed guests in the middle. We're going to do the first album, and then there's some extraordinary guests. And then we're going to do some newer songs. Well, not that new, they still might be 25 years old, but they're newer <laughs> than the first album.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next time. Take care. Bye, thank you.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain.
1: My name is Eleanor Morton.
0: My name is David Reed. I'm doing the man in the iron mask. Mm. Oh, Lord Lucan. The Hollinwell incident.
1: The Versailles time slip of 1901. Tamam should. Who was Caspar Hauser? The Diotlov Pass incident. Mm. Mm. I you said it. Yeah, I have no
0: idea how you pronounce it. It sounded I, right. Diotlov? Diotlov. Diotlov. I'll be doing some uh, deeply uh, culturally sensitive accents throughout this. <laughs> <laughs> Russians the... don't
1: listen to things. <laughs> to make